dive deep into the realm of large language models, prompt engineering, and best practices. With over 25 years of combined AI and product engineering experience, here are your hosts, Bradley Arsenault and Justin Macarin. Hello, Brad. Good evening, Justin. Brad, I think that small language models are going to eat the world. Small language models, SLM, why do you think that? Well, I think that large language models have historically run on the internet, right? We take a look at um, Google, we take a look at Perplexity, we take a look at OpenAI, but we also see a lot of models running locally. For example, Google Maps. We have an entire Google Map repository that's downloaded to phones. Um, so that yeah. users can access those maps locally. We have Google Translate, where oh, yeah. translation between languages. I always download all... those models before I travel. It's the same here, because why? why? But, but why do you install those, those models before you travel? Because the internet might be bad in the place that I'm going. And, you know, I don't want to be caught without the ability to, to communicate. That is uh, terrifying. All right. And I guess another example of that are all these speech to text and text to speech models that run on our local yep. machines, right? And yep. I know that there are some models that also exist in the browser. And I think you're better suited to maybe explain more about that. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there, there's these interesting cases, right? Where we have, we, we put a model in the browser and it like analyzes the user behavior. You know, it's a click, you clicked over here. Okay. You scrolled down the page then you clicked over here and they're, they're often trying to predict things like what product are you interested in? Or like what follow-up email should we send to you? And, and they're done in the browser, uh, just for speed purposes, because they run that model, you know, every, you know, every uh, every action that you take, and, and you don't want to be making an API request, you know, every second. So makes a lot of sense to run them in the... Interesting. And I guess Google also has this feature where you can recognize faces um, on photos. Now, I'm not sure if that's running on, on the cloud or locally. Yeah, no, in, in Google's case, they run a server side, as far as I can tell. But in Apple, they have the tagging thing that runs locally. Uh, so Apple has certainly got a bunch of models that are analyzing your photos every time you snap a photo uh, on, on your local device. Okay, so I guess the question becomes, if all these models can run online, why are they running locally, right? Why are they not running via internet and i think that this is going to like answer a really big important question that we have about how these small language models are going to eat the world and i think that it really comes down to four main things and maybe what we can do is we could highlight those four things and dive a little deeper into those four things the the first one is speed the second one is reliability the third one is privacy and the fourth that. one is cost so oh, money speed let's talk about speed right why is it faster for these small language models to run locally versus calling a a a server somewhere i i mean it, you know it's the internet at the end of the day right it uh the internet is slow 
And I think it's also partly that these models, you're not just running them once. It's not like you're making an API request and you're getting back a response in one second. Like coming back to that browser model, you know, it was running every 50 milliseconds. You you move your mouse slightly on the page. The model will recompute its prediction because it wants to use that prediction in case you click on something and you might click on something in the next 100 milliseconds. So like the, the, the speed really matters in, in that situation. If you, if you had to make an API request, you're adding 100 milliseconds. You're, you're, you're adding 60% to the, to, to the speed of the model. So like the, the speed can matter. And, you know, we like to sit here. I'm sitting here on a desktop computer with five internet, you know, fiber to my home, it's a pretty fast network. Now imagine I go over to my parents' place on my 5G network, the, the speed makes a bigger difference. You know, the latency on those networks are like 500 milliseconds. So it, um, it, it can make a big difference in usability, you know? If you've ever watched a video where the speech and the video is desynchronized, it could be desynchronized by like 50 milliseconds, just one frame. You can tell, right? You can always tell when the audio is not synchronized with the video. Oh, 50 milliseconds, it might seem like a very small amount of time, but our brains can tell. Like we, we, we want things that are performant. So, so that's really interesting because I think this, this leads to the second point really well, where you talk about internet and now let's touch on that reliability component. We know that the internet breaks, right? We know that sometimes laptops disconnect, yeah. oh, yeah. sometimes router will switch the IP address, sometimes servers go down. The internet, yeah. while it is reliable in many cases, it's not something that's 100% guaranteed. What is guaranteed is for you know our mobile device to stay on throughout the day or hopefully stay on yeah. throughout the day if it was charged you know, in the morning. Um, are, yeah. are there any other components to reliability that you think are, are important well, to note I'm just, here? I'm just thinking, right? Like, imagine that, you know, you're blind and you're relying on, like, text-to-speech to even in use your phone. Where you, you're, you're communicating with ChatGPT and you're like, yo, can you, like, call up Mayhem and, like, or can you send this message? Now imagine that your phone, that you cannot do that. Your, your phone is completely and totally 100% useless every time you disconnect from the internet. You go up to the cottage, useless. Rogers goes down again, useless. You know, it, 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 these things don't happen very often, right? Like I might spend 2% of my time disconnected from the internet but that in that two percent, I it's it's like it, your know, shit's happening. I really need to um, uh, have that model working on my phone. So I I think reliability is really important to a lot of people. You know, um, if you're a city slicker, you might be like, oh, you're always internet connected. But like, if you go anywhere outside the city, it matters a lot more. And I guess another thing that really matters is we know that local devices like mobile phones, like personal. Um, computing devices like laptops and stuff, we do personal stuff on those devices, right? Um, yeah. We might yeah. search um, medical terms. We might have, you know, family discussions. We might have things that are very, yeah. very personal to us. And having yeah. that kind of information go to a third-party server may not be in the best interest of the user, which means that now privacy also comes into play, right? Where there's, there's, there's a yeah. high likelihood that a local model that processes 
or, or, or computes, you know, text is, is actually safer, more private, more confidential than if the text were to navigate throughout through, through the internet and hit some third party server somewhere that we, we have no control. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, people are getting more protective of their data. And I guess the last point over here that I'd love for you to touch on is the cost perspective. So we know that Google could run all these models on their servers. Why, why are they running it on our computers? Yeah, I guess this is, I think, a valuable point to consider is that the consumer is willing to spend money on the device, right? They're willing to spend $700 on a phone or $2,000 on a laptop. They're getting a piece of silicon that is going, like, you know, spends most of its time at 1% CPU utilization. There's a lot of unused compute capacity out there. And yet here we are spending, you know, three cents an image to run a prompt against our, uh, some image that we upload. Um, when that could all be run locally, like the, the, the consumer is willing to pay for that compute capacity. They're willing to pay for a powerful laptop, for a powerful smartphone. Then why are we running these models server side, spending all of that money on, on uh, data centers and energy and cooling when the consumer is 100% willing to pay for it themselves? It, it, it just makes sense to, to run the model client side to save money. Ab absolutely. So, so I think that, that we discussed those four, four points really well. So speed, reliability, privacy, and cost. And I guess the next question becomes, how can we make this a reality? And we know that today, most large language model SDKs are written in Python, right? We've got Lanchain, yeah. we've got Llama Index, yeah. we've got this, we've got that. It's all Python SDKs, Python, 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 Python. It's really easy to code in Python, you know? Yeah. Um, it's, open up. I a did Jupiter it before. Notebook. It was cool. Exactly. Oh, same. Right. But, but I, we we also know that mobile apps aren't written in Python. We know that yeah. embedded devices aren't written in Python. They're written in C plus plus. Oh, they're written in C. And the smart TV that... definitely in Python. That's for sure. That's that's right. And 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 we also know that most web servers today are not written in Python. So I think that yeah. there's a massive gap in the SDK tools we're using today to build these large language models to basically access them properly. We don't have the tools or solutions. Anyone, anyone who's tried to use a large language model, if you're a Java or a Node.js Node programmer, like the other two big languages, you know, it's like, you know, you kind of to cobble something together. You know, you can, you can make it work, but it's, it's like hacky. It, there's like weird integration issues. You, you know, your, your, your JavaScript float gets turned into like 64 bit double and you, you know, you didn't expect, you know, that's just an example, but you know, that, that, that's difficult. If you're not using Python, it's really difficult to apply these models. It's suddenly you're going from like the established universe into like very specialty libraries with poor documentation. And and apart from Node and Java, we also have a lot of enterprise organizations that are writing C sharp. We have a lot of organizations oh. are writing embedded devices with with C plus plus. So, oh, so and, and 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 at the end of the day, 
all of these languages are probably going to need to access large language models, if not today, in the future. Yeah. Um, locally. Yeah. So I guess what would be a recommendation here and to, for, 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 for engineers to kind of get ready or, or be better prepared for the next generation of, of engineering? You know, one thing that, you know, I've been working in machine learning for 10 years and AI, deep learning, neural networks, whatever, for nine years. And when you're working on the cutting edge, like you're, you're doing really cutting edge stuff. You're at the breaking brand new spanking technology. The fact is I have found the libraries are all in flux, right? Now PyTorch and TensorFlow are stable. But if you remember using TensorFlow when it first came out, the API was changing every verse. 0.6, then we use this API. 0.7, we use this whole different API. 0.8, now we've got a whole new... And then 2.0 comes out, and they've got to do it all over again. You know, and it's, it, it, these things are in flux. That, that, that's the nature of living on the cutting edge. So you can't, you can't just go to GitHub and expect that there's, like, an established library that's been around and it's, it's got lots of maintainers. You know, we, we kind of assume that, right? Like, oh, I'm Python, I'm doing an API. There's going to be a dozen libraries for APIs. Well, you're doing large language models or small language models. There's, um, there's not the same established ecosystem. And I, I feel like we get into this trap, you know, where we... we we have that mode of, the, okay, I'm going to find an open source library, blah, blah, blah. And then we don't find anything or we find Langchain. And then, that, you know, and that, that's, that's all we settle on. It's, it's like it, there's no exploration. There's no consideration of like, is this tool appropriate? Because it's like, that's all you have. So it's like, you're either going to use that or, or make it yourself. Is making it yourself, like, is that something we should be considering more often, do you think? I... I think so. And it's actually one of the reasons why I built out, you know, um, the open source library that, that I've been working on for quite some time. It's because I didn't find any, I, I didn't find any solution on the market that, that kind of, um, allowed me to build in the way that I needed to build to move very, very quickly yeah. in the market that was constantly changing. Right. And I think that there are maybe two or three things that I use a lot of and that for for large language models and the first one yep. is just generating text and being able to use that text you know yeah in code the second one is the ability to classify things with text oh. so i send something for classification and finally the third one is formatting what comes back from the large language model whether that's a piece of text um, you know, removing the white space at the beginning or at the front, or maybe converting that text to an actual dictionary or JSON object or actual array in source code. Yeah, I think that yep. those things I just keep on doing over and over and over and over again. And it's it's it it seems to me like those are three very basic functions that don't require a massive library, that don't require massive overhead that should kind of be a little bit more popular in all languages. Like, and I guess I'll, I'll shoot that question right back over to you. You know, is it okay to kind of build something from scratch? 
is it okay to kind of explore this and not rely on other third-party libraries? It's a good question. And, you know, I've struggled with this actually quite a bit uh, in my own work. And I've gradually kind of come to the conclusion that when you're working on cutting-edge technology, it's just not the same as building another database API server. It really isn't, right? Like, in the one hand, we have these, like, common best practices, right? Like, software engineering best practices. Like, don't reinvent the wheel, right? But, like, that best practice it applies well for the api server you know there's a lot of wheels for api servers but you know what when it comes to large language models this piece of advice is not very good because we don't even know what the wheel looks like yet is it round is it square is it triangular is it that weird nasa mesh shape you know, people talk about don't reinvent the wheel, but in fact, the, re the, the wheel has been reinvented like over a dozen times throughout history. It, it, it's been reinvented like twice just in the last century and again, again, this century. You know, it's th th this best practice that we have is actually holding us back because we're not able to discover what we need. We're trying to build a it's like we have a, a target and we're trying to build it with what we have. We have these existing libraries. They're not that good, but we try to make them work, you know, but we're not discovering what we need and what we need is not what we have. And, and so I actually think that that piece of advice is, is, is not right when you're working on the cutting edge. You, when you're working so, on the cutting edge, you should be willing to reinvent the wheel because you're not really reinventing the wheel yet. Like, no, the, the wheel is not there yet. <laughs> you know what I mean? You catch my drift? I, I, I love it. So basically the conclusion is, you know, the wheel is still in development. We actually don't know what it looks like yet. So don't rely, yeah. don't, you know, um, rely. Yeah. Don't, don't rely on one of these off the shelf libraries, explore, discover, and build yourself. And that yes. will potentially yes. lead you a lot further than if you were to just rely on something that, that, that already exists. You're going to get something that's like a lot closer to what you need. That's like more specific to your company. Like it, it, there's just not established best practices here. And like acting like that is that you can just download a library and apply whatever it says in the documentation to your specific problem. Like we're not there yet. We're 10 years away from getting to that level of convenience and, and, and easy to use. Right now, I, it makes a lot of sense to build your own, to build your own stuff. Even if you hear about libraries, you look at it, it's not, it's not perfect. But you're like, okay, maybe I'm gonna jam it in, you know, with a screwdriver and kind of fit. It. No, don't do that. Just build it yourself. All right, it's, it's probably only a thousand lines of code. Like, just write what you need, and like, in the process of writing what you need, you're discovering like very valuable pieces of knowledge, not just for you, but for the whole industry. I. I love it, Brad. Brad, I, I love the way, you know, you explain these concepts and it was a pleasure chatting with you. It was absolutely wonderful to discuss this with you, Justin. All right. Well, take care. Have a good evening. You as well, my friend. Thank you for joining us. If you've enjoyed today's episode, hit subscribe and stay updated on our latest content. 
We appreciate your support.